don't know if you've read through the book of Matthew recently in preparation for Christmas, but it's really a lousy story. Like, if you were going to write a story about God coming to earth, you would never write it the way Matthew writes it. It starts off with a bizarre genealogy with Jews and Gentiles, which would never happen. It has men and women in his genealogy, which was never included. It's got people with all kinds of very scandalous past. Rahab's in there, Judah's in there, Tamar's in there. What a strange way to start the story. Oh, my microphone fell off. There we go. What a strange way to start that story. And, and in the middle of, of this kind of bizarre genealogy, we then have a kind of a miracle child born to a virgin. Okay, this sounded good, sounded Christmassy now. Then a dictator that's ruling the world who's kind of a tyrant. All right, that sounds horrible. And then he kills off all the two-year-olds. Merry Christmas. And then they have to escape to Egypt, like the place of bondage. And then they head back, they can't get to their hometown, and they end up in like this podunk little place called Nazareth. Who's ever heard of Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And after all of that, God says, this hot mess of a Christmas story, this hot mess of an introduction, he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled, or on target apparently. That which was spoken by the prophets... He shall be called a Nazarene. Well, there's no place in the whole Bible that says he shall be called a Nazarene. There's no reference to it. There's no quote to it. And yet he alleges that there's prophets who said it. That's weird. And how could prophets writing at 400, 500, 600 B.C. predict a town that didn't exist until 100 B.C. to be able to write about it? Hmm. This is a messy story. And where is God in the middle of that? And, and it looks like God is directing his sovereign will in the middle of this seemingly chaos. And maybe when you look at your life, you see a lot of chapters of chaos and things you wouldn't choose and places you wouldn't go. And it doesn't feel like God is in control at all. And yet he's leading you to a place you would never have gone that's the center of his will. That's our key verse actually today. <clears throat> Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. So all this was done... That it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of through the Lord. In fact, let's repeat those three things. That's a good thing to think about this Christmas. I'll say it and you repeat it. All this was done. All this was done. That it might be fulfilled that which was spoken of by the Lord. That which was spoken by the Lord. What if whatever chaos and craziness was going on in our life this holidays, this season, this year, we could say... All this, whew, you don't understand it, is being done. That it might be fulfilled, God's purpose in my life, that which was spoken of by the Lord. I want to try and give you some guides that we could have that kind of confidence in the middle of our circumstances. By looking at two guides, we're going to look at the Exodus as a guide. And then we're going to look at the branch of all things as a guide to understanding God's will. So we can have confidence that God is with us and working even when we're on detours in life. Let's start with the Exodus. Because it's, again, a strange thing to put in the middle of a Christmas story. But here in the Exodus, I think what we're going to discover is that you can trust that God may send you into something so that he can lead you out. And that's what I think is so strange. Like, why send Jesus to Egypt if you're just going to take him out? An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Stay there until I bring you word. For Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. 
Why don't you just kill Herod, God? Uh, When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord. Through the prophet Hosea, this one has a reference, out of Egypt, I called my son. So he sends him into some place, Egypt, so that he can bring him out of it. What might be the circumstance and place you wouldn't want to go, wouldn't want to be, don't even like that you're at, and God has sent you into that circumstance so that he can lead you out? The passage continues. It says, Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry. And he sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem and in all the districts from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined by the wise men. Then. Then. In that circumstance, it was fulfilled. That which was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah. Saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Often we find ourselves in these when moments. When I'm in this circumstance, when I'm in this mess, when I'm in this chaos, and I can't wait for then, get me out of here. But sometimes God leads you into an exodus... And he may not lead you out of those circumstances this side of heaven. I I wish I could give you a silver bullet and tell you he will. He may instead use that Egypt to lead you out of something internally that you need to be delivered from. And it may not be your circumstance. You're praying God would deliver you out of your circumstances, but he's actually led you into this circumstance to bring out some other level of slavery that he wants to free you from. I was talking to a friend recently. He's been in Bible study here at Horizon for a little bit, and he said one of the things that God's leading him out of he says, I, I'm making more money than I ever have. I, I'm, I'm, success is all over the place. And yet I am just enslaved to anxiety because I'm in a cutthroat business. And whatever good job you did last week is nothing because it better be better next week. And people who are producing at high levels are being cut. And I just got so much anxiety. And, and, and despite the prosperity, I realize that the pressure I put on myself, the pressure my family has for me, you know, we've got to have these memberships to certain country clubs, we've got to have these type of vacations. And, and though I want to sort of downgrade to have more inner freedom, I'm enslaved to anxiety and fear in these prosperous circumstances. And God is stepping in and beginning to nudge and tap and saying, you may look on the outside like you're all prosperous, but you're in Egypt. You're enslaved to anxiety and fear, and it might be materialism, it might be your reputation, and it's under this level of pressure, you're going to have to hear from God, what are you enslaved to? What is your real God? Not just the God you go to Sunday and worship on. I talked to another guy recently who was doing a similar thing. He kind of at the top of his career, and yet in the top of his career, he wasn't becoming the father he wanted to be or the husband he wanted to be. So he's talking to John Kirby. He said, you know, I really, I really feel like I need to make a career move, but I can't even imagine as a lateral transfer to a place that would have a career that would allow me to be the kind of person I want to be. And John was like, let's pray about that. You know, maybe in the next year God might do that. But this guy made a decision. I'm going to move in God's direction. I want God to free me from the the, the ways I've made my whole life about building my career instead of being the kind of person I want to be. And John was so surprised. It was like a week later he called up and said, you're not going to believe this. Uh, God provided a job and I already got it. It starts next week. Well, that was fast. Atypical too. But see, God sometimes puts us in Egypt to deliver us from something internally we're in bondage to. Do you remember the movie Prince of Egypt? It came out like when you know, Sierra was two or three. 
And I remember we watched that movie at the movie theater and then we played it all the time in our living room. In fact, Sierra was two, so I remember she would stand on my feet and, and we'd dance together. There's, there's a song in the movie where Jethro is dancing uh, with this little girl. I think it's his daughter or even granddaughter. And the song comes out, it's like, la, 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 and, and she looks up at Jethro with these big old eyes in the middle of the song, la, 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 dance with me! And they dance together. And every time we'd, we'd play that in the living room, I'd be dancing with Sierra, and we'd come to that moment on the tape, and she'd look up at me and say, dance with me! And we would just dance together in the living room. In fact, when Sierra got married a year and a few months ago, we actually thought about making that our father-daughter dance. She's like, oh, let's do that, the father... And, and I'm like... No, it looks really good in the living room with just you and me. This is as close as you're going to get. And you're like, I barely tolerated that, quite frankly, Chad. You singing and dancing. Whew, that was close. But really, wherever you're at in life, it's really those Egypts or moments you're saying to your Heavenly Father, Dad, dance with me. And if, you're, if this is the year that you're just having peaks and mountaintops and experiences, God says, just say, dance with me. Let me rejoice with you as you rejoice. Other times, you're sitting in a puddle, an Egyptian puddle, a place you didn't want to go and a place you don't want to be. And God wants the same thing, to say, dance with me. Just sit in the puddle with me. When Herod is mad, then. God wants to grieve with you in your mourning and your weeping. Say, God, it's nice that you got this whole heaven thing going, but I need you to enter my world. I need you to step into where I'm at. And that's what actually Christmas is about. It's about God, Emmanuel, stepping into our world, visiting with us. God, dance with me. Sit in the puddle of my circumstances with me. Because in one sense you say, why are they in Egypt? I mean, Egypt, really? And yet God told Abraham many, many years ago, in what's called the Abrahamic Covenant. He said, I'm making a covenant with you that you're going to have descendants and a Messiah. But before you get to the promised land I'm giving you, I'm telling you, Abraham, that your descendants, when they're here and they're not here yet, are going to go through Egypt for 400 years. He tells them in advance. But I'm still with you during those 400 years. And, and you've got to think, if you're, if you're Herod, chasing these guys down, and you're marrying Joseph, you're thinking... God, where are you? Dance with me. Sit with me. Help me understand how this could be your will. Where is God in all of this? And yet God has sent warnings, reminders through dreams, through angels. But how would you finance living in a country you don't know the language for two years? See, God had already been at work two years earlier by sending some magi to bring gold, frankincense, and myrrh. It was that money that God had prepared years in advance that came at just the right time to finance this journey of their exodus for two years. And the reason God sent Jesus to Egypt is because he wants you and I to know what Hebrew says, that he's a high priest who can sympathize with us. He's walked in our moccasins. He's walked in our shoes. He's been in the lowest of low moments. He's not a God who watches from a distance, but a one who gets imminent and up close. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to have a, a cousin killed of a brutal murder in John the Baptist and he sits in the puddle with us and yet he's still alive he's still there with you he's still Emmanuel Josh Corbin has this show kind of this crazy show he has celebrities that sit in this car with him and they sing songs together while he's interviewing them but he had one recently with Michael Buble Michael Buble and he are kind of singing along and being crazy and Michael Buble suddenly got very very serious 
And he said, you know, these last couple of years have just been going through hell. In fact, he said, I, I think I'd prefer hell to what I've been through. See, my three-year-old got cancer. And my wife and I put our entire careers on hold. He goes, and I have prayed, and I have meditated, and I have called out to God in ways I never have before. And thank God, my three-year-old was delivered from cancer. That's an exodus. God sent you into something to bring you out. Sometimes God doesn't answer that way. And what he said next was so powerful, because it was the real exodus, I think, in Michael Buble's life. He said, you know, prior to this, I was so obsessed with things I'd now call fluff. My next album, how many people at the concert, what do people think of me? All this stuff consumed me. But when my child had cancer, everything got put into perspective. I prayed more, I meditated more, and I realized that all the stuff that consumed me was nothing but fluff. That's an exodus. God may want to be your Emmanuel and exit you this Christmas season. So that's our first guide. Our first guide to understanding the mess of life is to understand Emmanuel, that God may be leading you into something so that he can lead you out of something. Our second guide is the branch. Now we'll get to this mystery I told you, like, where in the world is this prophecy coming from? So what happens next? Well, this branch has got another lesson. Trust that God may use what you fear the most to lead you to what you need the most. It's so interesting what happens here in the story. They're in Egypt. Now, Herod was dead. Praise God, Herod's dead. God's will is back. Not sure what happened the last two years. God has left the building. But he's back. Herod's dead. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child mother. Go back to Israel. Go back to Bethlehem. Good news, good news. Going back home. For those who saw it, the child's life are dead. God is back. Then he arose. He took the young child and his mother, and they came into the land of Israel, probably heading to Bethlehem, heading to Judea, hometown where his family's from. But when he heard that Herod's dead, but he had four people take over the land, and the one that's taken over Bethlehem and Jerusalem was Herod Eclecius, or however you say that. But whenever I pronounce something, it's wrong, just so you know. Archelaus is probably more accurate, was reigning over Judea. He can't go there because he was afraid to go there. What are you afraid of? Because it's this fear that actually leads him to where God wants him in Nazareth. Are you fearful that this Christmas season, your health wouldn't be what it is? Maybe you're going through a marriage crisis and you're thinking, I never wanted a marriage crisis, my marriage to be troubled, I, I would never choose this to be God's will. Are you scared the most because there's a relationship between you and a son-in-law, a daughter-in-law that isn't the way it should be or you want it to be? And that fear has just got you all stirred up inside, and understandably so. But God may use that conflict, that circumstance, that devastating moment, that fear to get you to think about, pursue, lead, reconcile, or redirect, turn aside is the word the Bible will use, to something you need the most. That you never would even have on your radar had it not been for the circumstance. That's what happens. He's afraid to go there, right? Scared to death. And being warned by God in a dream, why didn't God tell you earlier? Remember, he told him in that other dream, hey, Herod's dead. Why not mention, don't go to Jerusalem. There's another guy who might kill you. No, no. He waits until he sees something he fears the most to have a second dream to say, oh, yeah, by the way, he turns aside. He goes into the region of Galilee. Remember that word Galilee, because Galilee was known as the, the area of the Gentiles. We'll get to it in a second. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth. That it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken of by the Lord. 
And then it mentions, this time not the Lord. That which is spoken by the prophets. See the S? But there's no actual reference to a verse. There's nowhere in the Old Testament does it any time say, he shall be called a Nazarene. Nice, Matthew. Real nice. So what's he talking about? He references like lots of prophets have said it, and yet there is no place in the Old Testament you can search and say, he shall be called a Nazarene. I think it's God's word. I think it's true. That's a puzzle. That's a quandary. Well, let's do a little background on Nazareth. So Nazareth comes from a word, netzer. Sometimes it's spelled with an S, sometimes with a Z. If you use the Z, sometimes that's how it gets transliterated into Nazareth. But netzer. Netzer in Hebrew literally means branch. Branch. And so the people who started this little town called Branchville, Nazareth, named it using this kind of play on words from this Hebrew word branch. So Nazareth is known as Branchville. Another thing you need to understand is that in Jesus' day, not a lot of people liked Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And they didn't even like Galilee much. Galilee had a long history going back to Solomon's day of being a place of the Gentiles. Though it was in the promised land, you remember Solomon was building a temple. And when he built the temple, he needed supplies. Needed some cypress, needed some gold. There was a foreign king, King Tyre, King Hiram rather, um, of Tyre, who actually gave him cedar, gave him cypress, and gave him gold as much as he desired. That's a nice friend. That King Solomon in thanksgiving to this Gentile king for supplying the temple, gave him 20 cities in Galilee. So suddenly, this area of Galilee, going back to Solomon's day, a whole influx of Gentiles are here, and so a good Jew doesn't hang out in Samaria and barely hangs out in Galilee because of this kind of bad history going back to Solomon. So something to keep in mind. Hold that thought. Branchville. But how does it get to Branchville? We'll jump forward. Recent archaeological finds in Nazareth have found some areas and some homes that look a lot like what Jesus may have lived in. Same time period. It's the same socioeconomic level. His parents were very, very poor. That's why they gave two turtle doves as their offering, a Levitical offering for the poor. And so whether it's not this home, but it's one like it, very similar to what Jesus would have lived in, in this little town called Nazareth. Now a little background on Nazareth. A couple bullet points I'll try not to lose you on this piece. But Nazareth is known as the town of the branch or branchville where the descendants of David lived. Now how it got there, <clears throat> as you jump back a couple hundred years, the descendants of David knew that the Messiah would eventually come from their line. So 100 to 200 of them moved back into town. They're like, let's not move to Bethlehem because anyone trying to kill us will chase us in Bethlehem. Anyone trying to kill us will go to Jerusalem. Let's, let's put our own little new town right in the middle of a place that Jews don't really hang out much, which is the Galilean area where the Gentiles are, kind of the Sea of the Gentiles. And so they plant this little town and say, what should we call our town? Now they're hiding out from two groups. The Herod's descendants, I mean, King Herod isn't a Jew, so he's been destroying genealogy, so he's going to come after you. But even before that, there's a group called the, not the Herodians during Herod's time, but a group called the Hasmonians. So because of that, they're hiding from both these groups in history. So they plant this little town. They say, I know, since we're descendants of David, and we know the branch of Jesse will come through our line, let's call our town Branchville. Yeah, Nazareth, Branchville. So this little town hidden in the wrong place at the wrong time. Jesus is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, but he's going to be called a Branchville? There's a little background. Now we're back to our passage. 
So it came and dwelt in the city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled that which was spoken by the prophets. So where are these prophets? And where do they mention Nazareth? Well, where do they mention Branchville? See, maybe that's the way the Holy Spirit would predict a town that didn't exist for 400 years, is the town hadn't been named, but the concept had been named. Oh. Now let's start looking in the Old Testament for any references to Branchville. Ah. And now we find two prophets, Isaiah and Zechariah. See, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, And there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, that's David's dad, a branch will grow out of his roots. And that branch will be the king, and a branch will eventually be the Messiah. Ah, now we have one of the prophets. And now you see what inspired the Davidic clan to call their town Branchville. Because they knew from Isaiah that it was their descendants that would bring the branch of the eventual forever Messiah, descendant of David. So that word, nesed, is the word here used, a branch. Or netzer, rather. Uh, and again, that's the word we get, netzer, the plan words for Nazareth. But there's another one in the actual book of Zechariah. Behold, the man whose name is Branch! Now, I did not capitalize this, and I did not put the exclamation point. I've never seen this anywhere in English, ever in the Bible, except this place. I still don't fully understand it. There's something in the Hebrew construction of the word branch here that the English translators translate it with capital B, capital R, capital A, capital N, capital C, capital H, exclamation point. As if to say, get what we're saying! Branch! (laughs) Talking about the Messiah. The man whose name is Branch! From his place he will branch out! And he shall build the temple of the Lord. He will build the temple of the Lord. He shall bear uh, bear the glory and shall sit and rule on the throne. He shall be a priest on the throne. So he's going to be a king. He's going to be a priest. He's going to bring peace between them both. Now, here they use a little bit different word. So the word netzer, it's another word for branch. And this time it's the word tesmach. Probably pronounced wrong. Tesmach and and netzer mean the same thing, but one can mean literal branch, the other can mean literal or figurative branch. But this branch idea is probably why Matthew doesn't quote the exact reference. It was a concept reference clearly by the prophets, but not a specific reference point. But God predicts this, and the people end up calling it Branchville, and now Jesus has been directed, he shall be a branch, just as the prophet said. Now, a few more little background details here that are interesting. Remember a few weeks ago I mentioned uh, Virgo the Virgin and how prior to us knowing her as Virgo the Virgin, you know, you go back a few years and it actually, there's a little more history to that and some other things worth considering. One of which is, if you've never seen this picture of Virgo the Virgin, you'll notice she has in her right hand a branch. Isn't that interesting? And she's got in her left hand some seed. In fact, before she was known as Virgo the Virgin and even a few times where she is, there's this idea that she's holding a branch. In fact, if you look at the constellations we did two weeks ago, I mentioned that there's a possibility that the star Bethlehem was the unisection, uh, the, the connection of Jupiter, the father star, and Venus, the mother star, that happened to occur about 3 BC on the regal star, the king star, in the line of Judah. Ten months later, those same stars come together in Virgo the Virgin. Hmm. A couple interesting things about Virgo the Virgin. In Arabic, the whole constellation is called the branch. That's interesting. Another interesting thing is in her right hand is a branch. In her left hand is another star called Spica or Spica. But there's a Hebrew word for that. And the Hebrew word for Spica is Tasmach. Branch. The virgin is holding the branch. But the word Spica actually 
means first fruits. Why would a virgin be holding a branch in one hand and the first fruits in another hand that could also mean branch? And yet in Hebrew it tells us, in Greek it tells us, that Jesus will be the first fruits of resurrection. In fact, he's raised from the dead on first fruits. It's almost like Virgo the Virgin is telling us that she will hold the branch that will eventually need to rise for us. Now, would I, would I weigh my entire theology of Jesus on this constellation? No. But it is a fascinating coincidence. In fact, in Hebrew, it's not known as Virgo the Virgin. In Hebrew, it's just known as the Virgin. And it's possible, prior to the Tower of Babel, God actually put some different signs in the stars to show the gospel so the heavens could declare that there would be a virgin and we would be weighed on scales, but the Lion of Judah would bring forth a son that would crush the snake all written in the skies. The branch. God will lead you into something and use what you fear the most to get you to what you need the most, which is to be in Nazareth. So are you and I willing to trust that the thing we fear the most, that we've been praying, God, get this out of my life, get this out of my life, get this out of my life. God may not get it out of your life. He may use it to steer you to some other place and some other circumstance that you need the most during this time in your life. I remember my friend Larry found that. Larry Edge was a very wealthy, very uh, influential, very successful businessman in Buckhead down in Atlanta. And through a whole series of circumstances he did not see coming, his business just, in almost a few months, plummeted. So much so they had to liquefy everything, including his own home. And he was just shell-shocked by the whole thing. I mean, you talk about what he feared the most was happening around him. Because they had really nice furniture, living in Buckhead, he found that for the next year, as he kind of rebuilding the business and reallocating what he was going to do, he found that there were a lot of empty homes in Buckhead that needed to sell, but they didn't sell very well without furniture. So he would actually move all his furniture into a home that was for sale in Buckhead. And because of the nice furniture they had, after about two months, three months, it would help help the house sell. And that's pretty much how they got lodging for that next year. However, it meant every three months they were moving into a new mansion. And he said, so frustrating. All the transition, all of the hassle, on and on and on. So he moved from house to house to house within Buckhead. It was during that process of moving from house to house, he met a lot of people, real estate developers, people of faith, people not of faith. He ran a group of people who were starting a Bible study in their basement. And they thought about maybe starting a church for their friends. And so they did. So they started meeting in the basement. It was like 20 of them at the time. And Larry, because of this horrible circumstance with his business, ended up getting connected. He got connected with this group that helped him during a difficult time. And they decided to start a church. They called the church Buckhead Community Church. And he became one of the first elders of that church. That's when I was about 21. So when I was at 21 at Moody Bible Institute, I came and met this church, and I ended up becoming on staff of this church and becoming the multimedia director and the youth pastor of that church because their story intersected with my story. And God used that story in my life and in their life to teach me incredible things and learn a lot of things, a two-service design, one service reaching people who are unconvinced, another service reaching people who are deep Bible study people. Oh, isn't that interesting? 17 years ago, why in the world did I get hired here at Horizon? Now, one of the reasons is because God happened to use a moment years ago for me to be in a church that had a two-service design in a similar community as that we're in today, and God used that circumstance to get me hired here. I never would have thought, how do I get from Groveland, Illinois, to Chicago, to Cincinnati? It was not on my radar, Cincinnati. 
I think I went here once to, to get on the King Cobra stand-up roller coaster when I was 10. But God used this business issue, this church that was started, my story intersected to bring me here. And if you look at our last 10 years here in this building, last 20 years as a church, it's amazing the different turn-aside moments we've had. If you're with us at CCD, you know we prayed for land, 26 pieces of land we looked at, narrowed it down to three, got feedback, prayed, walked around, prayed over different properties of land, got this piece of land, can we build? Not yet. Pray for dirt. Remember praying for dirt? If you were here, we prayed for a lot of dirt. We prayed for a long time for dirt. God, are you ever going to give us the dirt? We got the dirt! Oh, it's going to take us about a year to squish the dirt. Squish the dirt, squish the dirt. Pay a guy to go out, not squished enough. Squish the dirt, squish the dirt. Finally, get into the building, build the building, have a big gathering. People write personal notes to their friends. That's how this church went from this service used to be about 70 people, one of them, at CCD. Now we have two services that have you know, about 300 in each of them. Maybe 150 in one, maybe 300 in the other. God just continued to work through just keep turning aside, trusting God. For the last three years, we said, what are we going to do about our kind of overflow problem? So well, let's look at video stuff. We've been talking behind the scenes for five to six years about video stuff. And then we went public a couple, about a year and a half ago, and the fundraising went for that. How can we have tools? And why are we so behind the times of trying to have this stuff on live stream? Well, we want to do it right. We want to do it well. But again, God used all these twists and turns and steering moments to prepare us. We built in 2008 when nobody was building, and we built this place for like pennies on the dollar compared to what it would afford because we had cash in the bank because of faithful pledges and faithful giving. And God was working in the middle of very uncertain times through our church. And even this, this week, we've seen incredible things. I told you that we're going to finally have our live stream ready to go. Well, it's very cool. And just to give you a term, but live stream means while the service is going on, you can watch it live. Then there's video on demand, which means I can watch it anytime that's not the time of the service. So we got all of our licensing approved this week. Woo! So that was our big obstacle to go to live stream. Our app went out last week. Uh, if you haven't downloaded it yet, it's Horizon Space CC in the Apple Store or the Google Store. There are Bible study tools in there for your own spiritual growth. How to get the Blue Letter Bible, version, Bible study plans. There's ways you can go back and look at the last 10 years of sermons we've given. Several people have texted me, when are you going to do Romans? Oh, we did. We just didn't download that one. Um, so there's lots of ones that are not on there, but there's lots that are on there. But it's also going to give you a chance to watch the service live or on demand in fact our team has been working so hard on that week that we can, i can announce today that our christmas eve service will be on demand not live stream you can't watch it the day of but it will be ready the next day so if you're with your family if you're out of town you're miss our christmas eve service it's a great opportunity to actually click it put it on your your youtube put it on your roku whatever you do and you can watch it and you can watch our services on demand the music and the message which has taken our team a long time to figure out. And that path is because we want God to be known. We want people to know. And so much of what we do is visual. We want to know how to study the Bible, how to look at the words, how to understand that there is a God who leads and who teaches and who enters our world so that other people will know him. Other people will come to find him. Other people can trust that he is the God. That will lead you into things. He can lead you out. He'll, he'll use the thing you fear the most to get you where you need the most. That's why we do what we do. So that you can feel motivated and, and learn who this God is so you'll go and do others. Maybe this Christmas season you're saying, I want to go and do something. We've got a team going to Belize. 
And they need a lot of non-medical personnel this year. And maybe you want to say, I want to be part of that. And God might stir you up to do that. Maybe you see the story of what God's been doing in our life. What you fear the most is giving. Maybe you've never really given a significant way. That just feels like, oh my goodness, that's my security blanket. And God said, no, I want you to turn aside to me and give of your time, give of your money in a significant way this year, this month, for what God is doing in this place. Or maybe what God's doing in another place. But be a giver. Be a server. Maybe go on your first mission trip. But don't miss God's will in your life because of fear. Let fear turn you toward his will. And that's our key takeaway today. I want to go back to one phrase I didn't mention yet. This idea of turning before you see. You see, until he saw Nazareth and the prophets and it was God's will, he had to first turn aside. And that phrase, turn aside, often God doesn't spell it all out in advance. He sends you to a place you're fearful before he gives you the next dream. He's asking, will you turn to me before you get all the details? When you turn, it's then you will see. Now, it may not be for weeks or years, but you're never going to see if you don't turn. And when you see, I'm in Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Oh, it's what God had planned all along. And it's the same phrase used of Moses in Exodus. See, being warned in a dream by God, he, Joseph, turned aside and ends up in Nazareth. But there was a man named Moses who'd been on the backside of the desert for 40 years. And the Lord saw... When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see the burning bush, it was then God called to him from the bush and said, Moses, Moses, are you and I willing to turn aside? For it's when you turn aside, you find God. God, I'm going to trust you in this mess. I'm going to trust you in my Egypt. I'm going to trust you to be my branch. Even though I wouldn't have written the story the way it's being written, even though I didn't want to go to these places, will you turn aside? In the midst of that turning aside, will you trust and worship that he's in the midst of it? There's a lot of things this last year. It's been a very challenging year for my wife and I with her two back surgeries and on and on and on and special needs stuff. And there are a lot of things that I'm like, I would not. This is a lousy Christmas story. This is a lousy way to write a story of somebody who God is with you. But God has used that to deliver me of things, kind of my addiction to freedom, my addiction to independence, good things I've turned into idol, to idols. Through some counseling I talked about, getting some counseling for hypervigilance under all that pressure. God delivering me from being to, needing to fix everything and wanting to solve things I can't solve and manage things that are unsolvable. It's been amazing how I had to turn aside before I saw what God wanted to deliver me from and deliver me to. And maybe God wants to do the same thing for you. He wants to bring deliverance to you. What if this Christmas season, you turn aside? You say, I'm going to trust. What if the mantra for the next few weeks, maybe for the next year, in your Egypts, in your turning branch moments, what if your mantra was, all this was done, that it might be fulfilled, that which was spoken by the Lord? What kind of confidence would we approach life if we knew there was a God who had it all figured out and he was Emmanuel. He was with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this incredible, tragic story of how you enter into our grief, our sadness, and our challenge that you are the branch 
And Father, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, before you go, I want to announce two quick things you might want to know besides our app, besides the video on demand, Christmas Eve services. So two things about Christmas Eve services. Number one, we are having regular services next weekend, regular equipping services, regular exploring services unrelated to Christmas Eve. Then we're going to have eight Christmas Eve services because our staff is bored and doesn't have enough to do quite frankly, and we want to drive them into the ground. No, so as a gift, honestly, this is a real huge sacrifice for the volunteers you're serving here, for our staff, but we do this because we feel like this is the way we can honor you, honor your family, honor your guests, so we hope that you feel the generosity and the service from us because we really do love doing it. Um, eight services, there are eight of them. You have to get complimentary tickets out in the rear atrium, 10, 11, noon, and 1, 3, 4, 5, and 6. If you want to know how you can help us, one way you can help us is if you can have some flexibility, come to the earlier services. Get your family out of bed. Come on, Christmas tomorrow. I have to get up tomorrow for gifts. Can't you get up for Jesus? You know, you can give kind of a guilt kind of thing if you want. But if you can have them come to the, the 10 service, the 11 service, the 12 or the 1, uh, that would actually be ideal for us because uh, we are really filling up on those afternoon services and we have a lot of guests that come to those services as well. So remember, regular services next weekend um, at, the, at the usual times and then the Christmas Eve service is on Christmas Eve. Eight services. Grab complimentary tickets. If you're not using them, bring them back because we do swap those around to try and honor people. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.